Uvalde, Texas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Buffalo, Ames, Iowa, Chattanooga, Philadelphia, Chicago, almost every weekend. And the list goes on and on and on. It's actually a list that would continue forward to include many municipalities and even rural areas in our country today. Violent acts that seem to tear at our heart, that leaves us heartbroken and speechless. It's many times after such horrible acts like these that skeptics like to say evil rules, there is no God. But I'd like to say quite the opposite. In fact, I think the way we respond to incidents like these proves that there is a God. I mean, why should I care about people hundreds or thousands of miles away in areas I didn't even know existed until I hear about a news report of a shooting that happened there? I don't know their names. I don't know their faces. But all of a sudden, when I hear of the evil perpetrated against innocent people, it breaks my heart. And like many of you, when you hear, heard of the mass shootings in Uvalde or Buffalo, tears come easily. I would say that because of this response, it shows that there is a God. We are created in God's image. God's heart breaks when evil and violence reigns on earth. There's a small verse tucked away in Psalm chapter 56 that says that God has put my tears in your bottle. Most biblical scholars do not think God has literal bottles of our tears in heaven, although that's certainly possible that he could have that. Most biblical scholars believe that the meaning is that God is attentive to every detail of our life. That when our heart breaks, God's heart breaks for us. That when we go through difficulties, God not only helps us, but shows great compassion for us. Because we grieve evil, violent, unjust acts, this proves to me there is a God because it's how he responds. But are these violent, senseless acts something we should accept? Something we should just think comes with the territory for living in a sin-filled world? Or can we strive to make it better? Last week I mentioned the word shalom, which is Hebrew for peace. Shalom is the idea of peace and harmony, completeness, prosperity, tranquility, of mutual flourishing. It's God's vision for the world. With all the violence we have seen over the past weeks, is it still possible to have shalom in our world today? Well, that's what we want to talk about. We're taking a deep dive into violence and our response to it today. This is upper level, or what I'd call 501 Christianity. It's not easy, and honestly, I've struggled quite a bit thinking and praying and preparing this message today. Let's start back in the beginning. When I say the beginning, I mean the beginning. The first two chapters of Genesis outlines creation. The Garden of Eden, God's vision for this earth, and how things were meant to be. But by chapter 3, sin enters the world, and by chapter 4, we have the first murder. Now understand, there is nothing happening in the world at that time that we associate with evil acts of violence. There are no guns, no drug wars, 
no gangs, no mental health issues. But it was sin that entered the world. And Cain kills his brother Abel. Fast forward only two more chapters. And in chapter 6, we see the first time the Bible uses the word violence. In verse 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. The word used here for violence means not only brute force or attacks, but also includes injustice, oppression, and cruelty. And if I back up to verse 6 of chapter 6, it says that God was grieved in his heart due to the wickedness, the evil, the corruption, and violence of man. This shows that God's heart breaks with evil. In fact, God takes out every man from the face of the earth with the exception of Noah and his family because God is perfectly love and love demands justice. But because of sin, and man has had two chances at a complete utopia, the Garden of Eden and right after the flood, evil and violence continue to rule. So now we're going to move forward from Genesis chapter 6 to a minor prophet, and his name is Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk is who Dr. Charles Ryrie calls a man who trusted God, yet was perplexed. And Habakkuk will say for us what many were thinking after Uvalde. In fact, the first four verses of this book are pretty remarkable. I say this because they could have easily been written today. With these verses, I'm going to read from the message translation because it gives us the best way of hearing what the prophet is saying in relationship to us today. God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil, stare trouble in the face day after day? Anarchy and violence break out. Quarrels and fights all over the place. Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. That's pretty intense. That's pretty strong. If I didn't tell you this was from the Bible, you'd think someone had just written it a few weeks ago. But it was written nearly 2,500 years ago. This tells me these types of things have been happening forever. In verse 2 of Habakkuk, it literally says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Habakkuk has been praying, crying, begging to God, not just once, but continually. You can feel the yearning in his voice. The phrase cry out literally means screaming at God. Habakkuk is not holding back, but he is angry. He is distraught. He is questioning God. That this is so vitally important to him that he cries to God, how long? He, isn't saying, he is saying, can't you hear me, God? In my translation, it would simply read, hey God, wake up. Don't you see what's happening here? I can't take it anymore. Violence is the key word here. It seems to be everywhere. We have this idea if we could go back to the good old days, things would be better. And I understand that sentiment. But what we really mean by good old days is simply simpler times. 
because we missed the good old days that only happened once, and that was in the Garden of Eden. Since then, our hearts have yearned for that again. When Habakkuk says violence, we in the United States can relate. Listen to these alarming statistics. An average American child will see 200,000 violent acts and 16,000 murders on TV by the age of 18. In 2020, according to the FBI, there were 1.3 million acts of violent crimes in the United States. Of those, 21,570 were homicides, which became the third leading cause of death for people ages 15 to 34, and the fourth leading cause of death for ages 10 to 14. And just this year, the CDC released that firearm-related deaths have become the number one reason for death between ages 1 and 19, surpassing vehicle deaths, which was the number one cause of death for this age over the past 60 years. In fact, as of June 5 of this year, there have been 246 mass shootings in the United States. A mass shooting was defined as four or more people being killed in a shooting that does not include the shooter. And finally, and yes, there is a finally here, there have been 948 school shootings since Sandy Hook in 2012. And since Columbine in 1999, nearly 300,000 students have been on campus during a school shooting. So we can relate to Habakkuk when he cries out to God about violence and how much more can he take. In verse 3, Habakkuk says, Why do you force me to look at evil day after day? The original word for evil here is iniquity. Iniquity is an immoral or grossly unfair behavior. If we look at iniquity from a biblical perspective, it's a conscious decision to go against God. It's the idea that you know what God wants, but you intentionally go against it. In other words, you're just sticking it to God. And he is saying, why do I have to look at this day after day? Do you ever wonder that when you turn on the television and watch the news? Do you ever think, man, I already know what I'm going to see on TV. I'm going to see more violence. I'm going to see more murders. Why do you have to watch this day after day? It becomes heart-wrenching. In verse 4, Habakkuk says, it's, or it's the idea that the law is completely ignored, that justice is a joke. In fact, the court system had become so corrupt that they had nowhere to turn. The word for wicked in verse 4 means not only someone who commits a heinous act, but someone who is willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage himself. It's someone who is completely selfish, someone who's completely me first. It's the complete opposite of the idea of shalom. So where do we go from here? Do we just throw up our hands and say, well, this is a problem that's been around for thousands of years, and just accept violence and anarchy and quarrels and fights and injustice? Or is there a better way? I would like to suggest there is a better way. And this better way is seen in the Bible. Not in laws or in man's speeches, but a prescription given by God to a world desperate for the cure to all these ills. If we just flip our pages of Scripture back a few to Micah, we pick up on a discussion he is having 
with the Israelite people about what God desires most. The Israelite people throw out that God must want these huge, extravagant sacrifices, and that would make God happy. God's response is found in chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God is saying that if you understood the law, then you would understand what God desires. God has clearly stated what he desires from people to live a life pleasing to him. But God is basically saying this, if you missed it the first time, or the second time, or the third time, here it is, I'm going to summarize it for all you slow learners. God is outlining for his people what is good, what God requires of you. So let's understand, this is no negotiation, there's no debate. If you desire to follow God, then this is what you must do. Number one is to act justly. In other words, to do justice. Justice is defined as the quality of being righteous, equitable, fair, balanced for everyone. In other words, it's a moral rightness. The idea here is to give everyone his or her fair due. Today, when we think of justice, most of us reflexively think it's a matter for our court system. And I would agree that our court system must reflect justice, or it's really not upholding its most basic civic duty. But the idea of justice here goes beyond our judicial system to each individual handing out justice. It goes to how we treat others, treating others in a fair way. In other words, we treat everyone as you would want to be treated. I'm pretty sure Jesus said it this way in a Sermon on the Mount. So in everything, do to others what you would want them do to you. We call this the golden rule. Later in the book of Mark, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, which is part of the great commandment. And in the book of Luke, Jesus proclaims everyone should be our neighbor, even those we might despise or have issue with. We call it the Good Samaritan. The key to the Good Samaritan was he had compassion. He had understanding. He had empathy. Therefore, he acted in a way he would want someone else to act toward him. In other words, he acted justly. The second requirement God gives Micah is to love mercy. A better translation might be to love kindness. This word for kindness shows up 250 times in the Old Testament alone. It describes God's faithful love, God's loyal love. His love is not something we earn, but is always there. This type of love in the New Testament is called agape. The idea here is that it involves action, not just feelings. That we have a heart-filled desire to do, God, do good to others and obey God. It incorporates our attitude and our actions. The third requirement we find in Micah is to walk humbly with your God. Basically, this means to remember who God is. He is God and we are humans made from dust. We remember our place. We rely upon God. We submit to him and his will and his desires and his commands. But I also love the idea of walking 
with God. That he is with us. That he is right there, step by step on our journey. It takes me back to the Garden of Eden when God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And my heart and your heart probably also desires for that day to come again. And by the way, don't you think we put Micah chapter 6, verse 8 into practice? That we would see a decrease in our mental health issues. If everyone promoted the type of justice and kindness and mercy that Micah describes, we'd have a decrease in anxiety and depression and loneliness and a host of other mental health issues. So how do we wrap it up in our society today and try to make it applicable to us today? We start by asking if we could have shalom in our world today. Shalom remembers that idea of peace and harmony, completeness, prosperity, tranquility, a mutual flourishing. It's God's vision for the world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers. That word Jesus used is shalom. Blessed are those who promote God's idea of peace. As Stephanie Englehart says, and I quote, putting our selfish desires aside and seeking the well-being of others to create an environment of peace in the community, even when it provides no gain to you. As we look at our society today, we are far from shalom. I think one of the ways we can connect Habakkuk's plea to God, what Micah records as God's desire for his people, and shalom is to make a world a better place for everyone. I overwhelmed you earlier with violent statistics, and I don't need to remind you of them. We live in a violent society. Many people believe we need more laws, whether that means more gun laws or stricter adherence to laws already on the books, and others say we need to pay more attention to mental health, or it's simply a society or a cultural issue. I'm not discounting any of those problems or reasons for violence in America, but honestly, it's a spiritual problem. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful, and above all things, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? So yes, we'll always have sin in our world. We'll always have evil, always have violence. But if you are a Christ follower, then you must love what God loves. And God loves life. God is not for evil. We must do what we can to promote shalom. The idea where everybody has a chance, where everyone flourishes. We in America are so lucky to have freedoms like we have. But sometimes we look at our freedoms as our spiritual guide. Our spiritual guide is always the Bible. I love our history as much or more than most. I understand our rights outlined in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and I'm very thankful for them. But I also see people fighting harder for their rights than what they do for what the Bible says. I understand the historic reason for the Second Amendment and how important it is. I support the Second Amendment. But at the same time, we have to look and see how we can try to make our world a safer place. I'm not advocating for taking anyone's guns away, 
but we need to come together to try to make reasonable compromises for the sake of our children and grandchildren to make our world safer, to make it more secure. If we promote life for the unborn, which we certainly should, we also need to try to make it as safe as possible for those in every part of the United States who are currently living. If your heart is upset that I ask you to consider a compromise, then maybe you need to have a conversation about what's more important, life or freedoms. I believe we can have both. But do not make the fight for freedoms your God. Just think of it this way. What if we were holding 19 funerals in Fulton because of a school shooting here? We cry for Uvalde because we think it could have been us. I'll leave you with this thought. Proverbs chapter 14 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Politicians have begun saying after violent acts that thoughts and prayers are not enough. And they are right from the perspective that prayers in the aftermath of violence is only meant to show compassion. It does not take back the evil act. What we should be doing is praying in a very proactive way to protect people from violence. Hebrews chapter 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan loves evil. Satan loves violence. Anything Satan loves, God opposes. So as people who love our country and want to see our country continue to be strong for many generations to come, understand that when we talked about Habakkuk and his heart was crying to God, how could God not intervene in the ugliness of the Israelite people? I did not tell you what God's response was. God tells Habakkuk he is sending the Chaldeans to come as punishment for their actions. This may be the last cry we hear for our nation to end its ways of violence before God's judgment comes to our country. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that these are challenging times. And we confess that these are challenging words from Habakkuk and from Micah. We understand that violence and sin have ruled in the world. We also know that that's not what your desire is. That your desire is for shalom, for peace, that everyone can flourish. And we just pray that somehow, some way, we would be a beacon to point people to shalom, to a point where they can flourish. And Father, we understand that violence in the world is a spiritual issue. And so we pray, Father, with all our hearts that revival would come upon this world that revival would happen, that we would go out upon our world and we would bear much fruit, that we would never be ashamed of the gospel. And when we think about this, we think of VBS. We think of the kids that can come to VBS and we can expose them to who you are. And we can start there. Help us, Lord. Bring us to you. In Jesus' name, amen.